This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 464 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and it is my absolute honor to welcome back on the show a good friend of mine, Dustin Hawkins. Now, Dustin told his incredibly powerful story on episode 39. I think it was one of the first times someone had been that courageous and that transparent about their journey. And it resonated so deeply with so many of you. Some of you found it much later as this podcast grew older. Some listened to it right when it first came out. And during that discussion, when Dustin talked about the injuries he had in the fire service, his mental health struggles, his near suicide, he talked about a concept called Red Line Rescue. Well, the idea was phenomenal, and I was so excited. This was four years ago now, but... Sadly, there are so many barriers to some of these great innovations when it comes to politics, financing, red tape, and Dustin fought and fought and fought knowing this was a solution to so many of our problems. Well, I am so, so happy to announce that Redline Rescue is live. I went down to South Florida, sat down with Dustin. We did the second one face-to-face, and he lays out the kind of last four years and, and the ups and downs, but also what this looks like and how you, planet Earth, can access this incredible innovation. You know, whether it's reaching out to a firefighter from another country just to talk to, whether it's someone down the road from you, whether it's finding culturally competent clinicians, meaning a counselor or psychologist or psychiatrist that actually understands the first responder community and is an invaluable tool. What I also want to add to this introduction, a few years ago, Dustin also stumbled across another innovation. His wife, Lynn, uh, has been battling cancer now, and he was riddled with guilt, wondering if he had brought carcinogens into the family home. And through a series of kind of realizations and epiphanies, he looked at the leather radio belt that he was wearing and realized that we really can't clean leather. It is leather as a sponge, and there's no way for us to completely decontaminate it. So as with Redline Rescue, Dustin embarked on a journey to find a solution to that as well. You know, a lot of our fire gear, we don't wear on EMS calls. We don't wear on public relations events, but we do. We, we wear our radio straps, and they see all kinds of contaminants. So he developed a multitude of innovation, whether it was finding the right material that was locally sourced here in the U.S., whether it was the laser welding that he had to basically kind of innovate himself to create a completely washable, cleanable radio strap that can literally be wiped down or immersed in a stronger bleach solution if needed. But you can literally decontaminate this radio strap completely. These straps, once they leave the fire scene, they're going to be back on our shoulders, on our skin, against our neck, um, touching them with our hands. So the ability to completely clean these radio straps is absolutely paramount. So the company is called Safer Straps. Dustin and Lynn are the founders of this. So this is a first responder built company as well. So if you go to www.saferstraps.com, you will see their website. And then if you use the discount code SAFER15, that's SAFER15, you will get 15% off that purchase by listening to the Behind the Shield podcast. So Dustin and his wife have brought two very, very powerful changes, one for the mental health, one for the physical health to the fire service. And I urge you to go to both. 
Red Lion Rescue is redlinerescue.org. So for anyone listening, go and check it out, whether you are in crisis, whether you are just wanting someone to talk to, whether you're feeling 100%, there are options there for you to find peers and counselors in your area. There are options for you to be that peer or that counselor. So I cannot urge you strongly enough to listen to this podcast and go to Red Lion Rescue and check that out and go to Safer Straps and check that out. So with that being said, after four years, I am delighted to welcome back Dustin Hawkins. Enjoy. Here we are. We sat down. I remember being in where they live, San Antonio, outside San Antonio, in my in-laws' house, and we did episode thirty-nine in August two thousand fourteen. Mm-hmm. And now we are sitting in one of the most beautiful places I've ever known a person to live. For people listening, Dustin's house is literally like some oasis. In the middle of a jungle. <laughs> so. yeah, you're very, I think you're very biased or we got to get you to travel a little bit more. No, right? I've traveled a lot. I've traveled a lot. It's absolutely gorgeous. So when you talked about gardening as a, as a therapeutic you know, outlet for you, I see why now. It's such an investment, you know, obviously, over Positivity over through uh, you know, a, a passion. It can be a really amazing tool beyond transference. But if you can really pour yourself into something that makes your heart feel good, uh, and I never knew why I was doing it all those years. You know, it was an aha moment, and I look at it now, and uh, it's amazing. I can see every single plant, every palm tree, every hardscape, every design, and I can look at it now without running from it and remember that shift, that day, the reason that I ran into the garden, that body recovery, that special ops call, that that pain, that nightmare, and now I look at it and go, man, I am... I am thankful that we as a family had this and that I wasn't smart enough to know why I was doing it. But now I look back and I'm very blessed for it. And it's amazing because I can remember what it was, the temperature, the time of day, the call, what it was that triggered that to run out of the garden. I love it. I'm glad to share it with you. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. So for people listening, episode 39 of Behind the Shield podcast, like I said, August 2017 was really the first interview that I had done where someone really bared their soul, you know, told that courageous story, told the, you know, the, just the the sequence of events, you know, the Fire Academy experience and then, you know, the, the boat and and losing a friend and, you know, your own near suicide and all these different pieces of the puzzle. Um, and in that conversation, at the end of it, four years ago, you told us about Red Lion Rescue. Now, for people listening, I know everyone was firstly moved and I got so many, you know, like messages like, dude, I was in the middle of the gym on the rowing machine. One minute I was crying, next minute I was laughing. People thought I was crazy. <laughs> but I think everyone was inspired and just full of hope because Red Line Rescue was such a great idea. It was born out of, you know, tragedy and, and your own experience. But then, obviously, there followed a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape. That's an understatement. Yes. So <laughs> what I would love to do 
Um, there's other things that we're going to get into as well. Um, you know, your your beautiful wife's struggle with cancer and how that you know created another amazing um, branch to your story. But if we um, uh, if we can recap, not your story. Everyone can listen to that on episode 39. But the the genesis, why there's a napkin sitting in front of us now. <laughs> Um, kind of recap that and then kind of lead us through kind of where we were, where you were kind of really starting to formulate that idea and then why, not why in a bad way, but the the journey of four years and then where we are today. I still remember that night when you called. Uh, I, I can tell you that uh, was not uh, comfortable with sharing any component of stress or trauma. And, you know, I think that what I found is people in life can be driven by passion. And passion isn't always a bad thing. People say you have to get pissed off enough to do something about it. But uh, that wasn't the case. It was just passionate enough. And I just didn't want to carry any more scars. And it wasn't about me just trying to improve something because it was going to be better and more tenable for me as an individual. It was, I didn't want anybody else to go through it again. And if, if, any success came out of pain. I just didn't want another firefighter, another cop, dispatcher, UCSI, social worker, people that are in the service to serve others. I didn't want them to go through it anymore. And I, and I, I remember that moment when you called and you said, do you, <laughs> you don't want to interview you. And uh, I think I told Lynn that night, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to talk to uh, this guy, James. I've seen some of his, his, his podcasts and checked it out. And I said, I, I don't think I'm a fit for this. And I think that, that, moment i think you sent me a link i was on the ipad and he said hey we're just going to kind of talk about it and i had that moment and i think we all have that moment in life as as human beings we're going to go left we're going to go right and every bit of my my mind the the, the you know putting foresight into this i didn't want it i didn't want to tell you anything um you know i think we had just started with uh, collaborative and uh, i'd only gotten up in front of a, a group of maybe two, three dozen firefighters before and even discussed, you know, what mental health looked like in the fire service. I think before that interview, I hadn't even approached the uh, Bureau of Training and Standards, or the state fire marshal's office or any of them, you know, not, let alone, you know, gotten up in front of a group of people and shared. And even though they felt like there was safety, like I was just talking to another firefighter and I, I, I chatted with you. I think I'd seen you, you know, once or twice and said, you know, this, this guy gets it. I didn't want to share what I found is with peer support, with mental health, with reaching out, with asking for help, I think we all hit that divergent. You know, do I actually want to share this? And uh, what I'll tell everybody who, who's listened to the, the first podcast uh, that I've done with you and uh, all of the ones, and you, you've met some amazing and astounding lives. You know, as you know, as they say, you can live one life for a read and live a thousand. You have, you're a collector of badasses. I am not in the category anywhere near of the people that I listen to. I on disagree, but carry on. <laughs> you, you 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 have titans and I've, I've always been astounded by that and i was nervous then and i can tell you i, I still am nervous <laughs> talking to to or about this but i'm comfortable with i know we did the right thing and uh it was it was it was tough because there's a lot of places that we go now in, in the fire service world where people say hey you're the guy from behind the shield you know, and I'm like, no, 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 that's, that's James Gearing. I said, no, but you did the interview. You like, you opened up your heart and you let it fly. And I'm thinking, yes, and it was nerve wracking. And I want you to do the same thing. 
every chance you get. Don't hide. I mean, you, you don't, don't, don't ever take those scars on the outside or if they're the inside and hide them. Don't run from them. And uh, there was a lot of things, kind of like lofty goals, you know, of, 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 of a young heart and a young mind that hadn't experienced bureaucracy. Uh, and uh, it's been a ride, you know, and I, I, today was the first day that we took the napkin out. Um, it's uh, I put it in a plastic bag. My shirt's still on the safe today. Today I was burned. And uh, tonight for those listeners where uh, we we are going to have a cocktail. For those of you who have substance abuse problems, do not have a cocktail. Um, and we're going to return it back to carbon. Uh for those of you who don't know the story, uh, listen, and it'll make a little more sense on the first podcast. We're going to finish a shirt that's badly burned, and we're going to let a napkin join it, um, because ultimately we all are, no matter what pain, no matter what struggle, no matter what strife we are. We're carbon, ladies and gentlemen. We're beautiful, unique. Well, I'm not. You're better looking back than <laughs> I disagree uh, again. <laughs> but uh, we're all carbon. So with every cell in your body, choose positivity, choose good. We're going to return it you know, back to that state. And um, it was weird taking it out tonight. Uh, in fact, I need a little interpretation from it. There was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of tin cane rum, uh, you know, and I, 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 I took it out and it was interesting, even with resiliency and, and mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy and knowing the subconscious and conscious stuff as firefighters, we, we need to know this. That's why we, it's in minimum standards now to talk about these. Uh, but it was amazing to take that out. And I remember pen to paper, uh, Thank you for interpreting the last part because there was a little bit of alcohol involved in this. <laughs> Just needed some fresh eyes. Um, yeah, I remember the night sitting down there on the on the porch with the with the bullet that uh, was left uh, the night that David completed suicide. You know, and knowing that we could do a better job. And to me, this is a culmination. This is amazing. I actually get to to finish this journey here with somebody that I, I spoke it. We brought it to life. And, you know, the Behind the Shield podcast and all of the people that you bring in put awareness, not just in this country, but many. You know, we, we've got uh, British Columbia and, and, and we've got the, I think it's the assistant. Steve is, I, I'll get his last name. It'll come to me in a minute. But uh, the assistant, the prime minister in Canada, uh, does a fire first responder mental health, has reached out and said, hey, we want a whole section on Redline Rescue. Really? Can you give us a slot? Oh, fantastic. And that's because they heard about Redline Rescue through Behind the Shield. Really? So it's astounding the reach that just sharing an idea and you know i i took this out tonight and i realized how unpopular these things were <laughs> it, i mean it, just going through minimum standards i can tell you brothers and sisters whether you drag a hose or tote a gun or you answer dispatch or you're in corrections or wildland it's amazing how we have these little analogies see something say something well get fired up about it get ready for battle I didn't know. I, you know, I remember walking into <laughs> the Florida Fire Chiefs conference and uh, talking about suicide and depression and, and substance abuse, and not in that 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 not in that bullshit terms. Can we say that? Do we get beeped? No, no, no. <laughs> you, you get you get amplified. When you... <laughs> not 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 in those 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 just pin it on a wall and drinking's bad. But I'm walking up. And it was after that podcast. I'm like, look, if I felt comfortable to talk about killing myself, talking about seeing stuff that, that I knew was in the past and was no longer there, that, that we need to educate, we need to warn the other people coming in. And I remember finishing that podcast and going in uh, to the health and safety conference. And, you know, I was there with uh, Chris Bader, you know, the president of the health and safety collaborative. And it was almost like that, that wind up uh, clapping toy, you know, the, the little plastic, you know, monkey with the tambourines. And he goes, okay, here's the deal. There's a lot of fire chiefs in there. Um, 
you're going to go in and just do your thing where you just speak. And I'm like, I don't like public speaking. You could have fooled me. Oh, God, I still don't. I, I still don't like it. I don't. I, I would rather I'd rather just have an intimate conversation or talk to plants and animals or express something with building. Um, and I just remember walking in and, you know, to, to talk about suicide. And, and I'm going to read that. I'm going to read the napkin because, nope, this is the first time I think you and I have ever talked about the ideas. I guess you got to see the rum stained uh, tears and boogers and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> on there. Um but uh, and we'll go sequentially about what what that journey's been. But, I mean, just <laughs> to standardize peer support. If I'd have known <laughs> how big of a task that was, you know, kitchen table counseling sessions, firefighters they pull some crazy stuff out of their ass. You know, we're going to change this. This is what we're going to do, and they get it fired up, and then they leave the the station, and it just fizzles out. You know, standardized peer support. We'll touch on how dynamic of a journey and how tough that was. Uh, and how hard it was to get my ass handed to me in Tallahassee, not realizing what a challenge it was. Um, the first time, this is the first time these letters were ever put on paper cap. <laughs> a clinician awareness program, you know, to say we want culturally competent clinicians. So when a firefighter reaches out, a law enforcement officer reaches out and they don't have a clinician say the dumb shit like they said, hey, can I touch your scars? And the longer I've been in this field in the mental health section, found out that that, that wasn't, a unique anomaly. So many of our brothers and sisters and their family members, that matter, have, have gone and reached out for help. And they were they were that battled, battered, broken toy that, that a clinician just didn't know what to deal with. And they were taking every piece of mud they had for general population and throwing it at a wall and were making it worse. And, you know, to write that down, a clinician awareness program, not realizing how big and broad, how difficult it was to dive in to do that. My favorite one. To all of those uh, members out there that that, that, that are, are part of a department, if you don't realize this, you live in one of the most amazing states in this country, in this union, in this, it's this beautiful country that we have. Yeah, there are challenges or there are difficulties. You bet your ass there are. But we live in a workers' compensatable state of Senate Bill 376 for mental health issues for first responders. If you haven't taken time to realize how magnificent and how 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 terrifying of a journey that was to make that compensatable injury i mean i said it right right here before it was even popular make this shit a comp issue that's what it says because up till that time that we interviewed if you didn't have an accompanying physical injury well you weren't broken you know and i and i and I, for the journey that my family went through, because this is a family journey, you know, fire service, law enforcement, you know, I'm, it's a family journey. I'm the son of a teacher and the son of a law enforcement officer. It's a family impact journey. And if I didn't have the accompanying physical injury and in that date and that age when I was burned, we, we were screwed. Because let alone just put aside the physical injury, as they say, when a firefighter loses their peanuts and they go off the rails, they didn't know what to do at that time. It wasn't in our vernacular. It wasn't in our conversation. And that was that. that's a whole section we're going to cover in here, too, about what it meant to make a compensatable injury. And then Redline Rescue. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Redline Rescue is alive. You can go on redlinerescue.org. I, 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 I remember pacing the hallways talking to you on this podcast. And I remember um, hanging up the phone and that, that feeling, that question of what if it doesn't happen? What if it doesn't work? 
what if we can't achieve this? And what hit me is I knew exactly what would happen if it didn't work. We'd have another slew of flags on caskets. And I'm tired of the pomp. I'm tired of the circumstance. I'm tired of having people after I do a funeral go, man, I want you doing my eulogy. You just really know how to connect. Like, well, why aren't we connecting while we're alive? Mm-hmm. What can you do my wedding? Yeah, <laughs> we can do your wedding. I yes. got that one down, <laughs> which I've already met your wife. So we're, you've, you've just... <laughs> well, after me scratching the car, I might need another yeah, one. You're going to need another one. Uh, <laughs> for those of you, ask uh, James about how not to scratch a car. Um but I knew I knew the cost if it didn't work. Um, I didn't know how, how long the journey was going to be, uh, and you know that first that first phase was clinician awareness program, uh, trying to stop the way of doing business as usual where we just met this liability profile of saying, hey, you know, we need to cover our asses. Let's go ahead and get a feel good poster on the wall. And if you're feeling sad, call this number. They'll make you glad. And what they what they were doing is they weren't practicing it. They weren't refining it. They weren't getting cultural competence clinicians. Hell, for that matter, most departments had the same problem that my old Indian River County did. Little plug here. Indian River County has turned out to be an exceptional behavioral health access program department. it's, it's astounding to go from the darkness towards growth, to go from grief to growth as possible. Uh, you need to have not only passionate firefighters, you need to have a union that knows how to get engaged, not in the way. We're going to talk about that a little bit in a minute. And a department head, those who say the top down's the only way, bullshit. The bottom up is the only way, wrong. This isn't a me thing. This has to be a we, has to be an us. And if you don't have departmental support, here's the deal. Your program's not going to succeed. Your behavioral health access program with the CAP and with your CRT and with your peer and with, with your medical director, it's not going to work. Now, that doesn't mean that if it's not going to work, give up. What's going to happen is, is you are going to have firefighters, law enforcement officers to complete suicide. It's going to happen. And even with a presumption state, even with all the progress we've done, my number was 113. The last class that I taught in Palm Beach County for Clinician Awareness Program, the, the, the night before, number 113 of firefighters, law enforcement officers that I specifically have worked with. There's a huge board in the office, and all we had up there was their initial, their injury, their date of birth, and qualifying factors that I was helping them through. These are 113 souls that people referred, either through your podcast or through, through a friend of a friend or, hey, this guy gets us. We had people that would show up to our home. That's why we had big gates around our property. <laughs> but people show up and say, hey, I need your help. And you know it when you see it in another first responder. You know when their heart is fractured. You know when they need help. And they say, you get me. And it's scary. My number was 113. 113 firefighters that I've worked with since we've done that podcast personally and intimately that still completed suicide. It's awful. In four years. Four years. You take a bigger scope, a look across this country, that's a drop in the bucket. And what I said is, in my heart, at that moment, I said, enough is enough. One is too damn many. And for those out here who who, who are struggling with your department and say, look, they don't get it, or, or they're, they're challenged with their union, or their peer support team fell or faltered, or they only have CISM, you will have a driving impact that will push your heart into a direction for growth. You just have to decide when enough's enough. I knew what my number was. And that's after fighting for it and struggling with it and, and, and meeting all these pitfalls. You know, So it started with day one clinician awareness program. 
I knew that that front line of reaching out, calling that 1-800 number like we talked about, we, we could do a better job. So it was a challenge. You know, um, a huge shout out to Palm Beach County Fire Rescue. You know, I'm going to do a little shameless plug here for them. Uh, you know, uh, Jeremy Hurd, uh, who is, uh, I believe he just got promoted to battalion chief. I need to get him to pay for my lunch from time to time now, that cheap joker. Congratulations, Jeremy. Yes, congratulations. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, when somebody promotes uh, into admin, they suddenly become a dinosaur and have little T-Rex arms and can't reach for their wallet. None of that's true with him. He's a good guy. <laughs> uh, he's, he's a good guy. But uh, Jeremy Hurd and Larry Dolan, uh, who, who two at the same time where I saw the scope of wanting to make this a big statewide national machine, where we find the clinicians ahead of the curve and build those relationships, make sure they're paneled, make sure they accept the insurance, make sure they understand how to work with our population that immerse them. They were working on it. They said, hey, let, let's, let's start a one-hour meet and greet down here. And they, they were awesome. And any of those on here that if you have a chance to meet Jeremy Hurd or even Larry Dolan, which couldn't be two more extreme sides. Jeremy's, you know, uh, uh, gentle and soft-spoken. And Larry is, he's the captain that you want. He's the old salt of the earth. Take no crap, foul mouth. I mean, he gets along as equally as a family dinner if he filters as, as he does at a truck stop. But he's the guy, ride or die, two o'clock in the morning that gets this, understands it, and has your back. And for those, those two men, and I mean men amongst men, opposite sides of the spectrum, to have, have said, taken in, hey, you guys are doing a one hour. What do you think about doing an eight? What do you think about doing a 16? What do you think about doing a three day? And to have built that, you know, there's some challenges, you know, to, to, to have the idea of let's immerse clinicians ahead of trauma cycle so they don't say dumb stuff like, why do you have three refrigerators? You know, what do you mean you work 24 hours? You obviously don't care about marriage counseling if you can't make it here every single Monday. You know, to immerse them ahead of time, that's not that we don't care. We're not trying to invest in our family, invest in this session. We work a 24-hour, 48-hour shift. What do you mean you didn't come home? Your wife said that the washing machine broke or your husband said, hey, the toilet's not working. You obviously don't care about engaging in a relationship. No, let's get them in so they understand the hierarchy of what we do. and We can't just pack up, shut the station down and come home. You know, in my mind, it was going to be so simple to just get clinicians and bring them in. But we had to engage the Bureau of Training and Standards. I mean, you're asking a big ask. And I, I'm going to tell you, our Bureau of Training Standards here in the state of Florida, uh, it is astounding to me the amount of work that they are able to produce on such a limited and refined budget. For those of you who go, man, the Bureau of Training Standards doesn't do enough. These men and women work their ass off and get paid peanuts. And I didn't realize it. I always thought that, you know, that that that's, that's you know, Tower One. You know, that's the ivory building. They've got, they've got all the resources, everything they need. And what I can tell you is they have a whole lot of heart and a whole lot of experience. And if it wasn't for the guidance from uh, Director Hallis, Julius Hallis, and Chief Melvin Stone, and Chief Mike Tucker, which let me tell you something about this. this is interesting. So we just had uh, on May uh, 10th, uh, State of Florida just made it. I don't know if you watched the announcement. State of Florida made it uh, the first responder mental health day. They had uh, Senator Perry and the CFO was there, and they made an announcement. Interesting thing. They handed the award to Chief Mike Tucker. Now, you know Mike Tucker? Yeah, he's been on the show. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've worked with him with the with the kind of wellness side, just talking about sleep deprivation, nutrition, and exercise in that same minimum standards class. Well, that guy's also a badass. It's just gone through a, a complete journey and battle of cancer. Exactly, yeah. He told, um, told us that story. It was amazing. Ironically, and, and they, they, the, to talk about the support of the Bureau of Training and Standards, what they need, they handed the mental health proclamation, the, the first responder mental health, they handed it to Mike Tucker. 
And one of the things I thought was amazing is, you know, to um, I apologize for those out there. Yes, I am a chaplain, but I'm a firefighter first. So if I'm offending anybody (laughs) with my language, I'm a firefighter first. If we haven't offended you, we'll get to you in a moment. Oh, yeah, there's plenty of time. Yeah, we'll work on that. Uh, But uh, they handed the proclamation to Mike Tucker. Now, here's the neat thing. Mike Tucker, his first day on the job as the investigator for firefighter injuries and fatality was the day I was blown up. It was my case. It was my case. And you think about the universe and whether it's apropos or strange or odd, you just go, my God, he was here investigating an injury when I didn't even realize an injury could wake up a sleeping giant of all the trauma we've taken on or even without an injury. That that library can crack open at any moment when that note, that perfect musical trigger occurs and all of that pain comes pouring out. I'm like, here's the man that was there on ground zero, day one, the injury investigating it. And then I had to pitch and present to him a year later about letting clinicians come on state fire grounds and get in bunker gear and get in the simulated environment and go on air. You want to talk about a sales pitch for my life to go to the Bureau of Trading and Standards and say, okay, hear me out. Hold my beer, sir. So what we're wanting to do is to create an army of culturally competent clinicians is we need to put them in PPE, which there's a whole NFPA provision around this for safety. And we want to bring them on fire grounds, and we want them to perform work, task, and function, and I want to put them on air. You want to talk about foresight and what a leader is for, for, for anybody, whether you're a first-day firefighter or you're a last-day chief. Leadership is not a rank insignia on your collar. It's not. It's about having foresight about looking introspectively and inwardly and saying, what can we do that's right and how can we move forward? Which means you're going to have to do some creative stuff that's going to make you uncomfortable. And to have the support of the Bureau of Training and Standards, and they said, look, when you came into the health and safety conference and you went up on stage and poured your heart out about suicide and addiction and and what post-traumatic stress looks like and you were one of us, I felt like you were speaking directly to me. And I said, no, 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 no. Each one of you has... A one-of-a-kind unique story. There's no there's no same. There might be similar paths, but there's no same. To have them all there in one spot that day and then have to reconvene with them six weeks later and say, hey, I need some permission to get these clinicians in bunker gear. We need to develop a curriculum. Oh, and do you have anybody at Department of Health? We need to lobby them to make this an actual credentialed course and get the learning objectives and then actually do the analysis for the curriculum and then submit it and then to get CEs. Look, what I told you when we had that interview, to me, it was just as easy as, well, yeah, let's just do it. I had no idea what a roller coaster that was going to be just to make it happen, let alone the logistics of putting on an orchestrated class that takes about 20 people. I mean, it, it's, it's a big deal to put on one of these programs, logistically just feeding them. Getting them there, getting all the PPE there, making sure that they have the prequal liability forms taken care of, their health evals have to be done. And this was before COVID. This is, we have to make sure a clinician's not going to kick off on the fire grounds and I've got to hide the body. <laughs> we didn't kill anybody. Yeah. I'm, 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 wink. I'm, I'm winking. I'm glad that nobody sees that. Uh, you know, in, in, in that, the thing that we learned is we needed a place to put those, and that's where the CRT came in the uh, clinician response team and Coral Springs uh, kudos uh, to uh, Fire Chief Babnick you know even before uh, MSD happened uh, to have a clinician response team and that's so important for all of those clinicians out there that are going to listen to this because we're finding that clinicians that are being energized and wanting to work with first responders they become family 
And I mean, we're having we're having clinicians out of the 150 something odd clinicians that have signed up for Redline Rescue in just a short period of time. They devote their practice to this. So Coral Springs, I mean, and, and I want to name the the, the incept, you know the inceptors of this. You know, we had um, uh, Sean Cotton, uh, Andrea Santiago, and uh, Becky Trinzik. You know, for those three clinicians to come in and they went through one of the clinician awareness programs that the collaborative put on, and uh, tried my best to traumatize them. Uh, I say that tongue in cheek. Uh, they, they dedicated and devoted their life to working with first responders and embedded themselves. So, you know, for anybody listening who wants to know what a CRT is and download those policies and programs and what's a BHAP, another one I sketched on a napkin. Uh, that was more of a paper towel role. We were at a conference uh, to put it all together so it works and ties in with risk management and HR and 376 and how to get it covered under insurance and how to force the hand of your EAP. We can do a whole session where I could teach people how to force the hand of their EAP to, to comply. Um, Coral Springs was amazing. And we're seeing so many departments emulate that now to where they have those clinicians, like those three that started in Coral Springs, uh, where now they, I think they have three or four or five just in Coral Springs. And they work for the entire city. It's astounding, which means that is their entire practice is dedicated and devoted to building those relationships pre-crisis. And you know what the amazing thing that I watch now? Other departments that have done that and I get to walk in, and this is one of the things I've always asked for it to be free to the end user uh, for, and I love it now, for no one to remember me. I don't want people to say this is something that, and it's why one of the things whenever you say, look what you've done. And it, actually you say it really nice. Say, look what you've done, mate. And I'm like, <laughs> that, was, that was not my voice, by the way. Uh, and uh, that it's not, it's not an I, that it took an us, that nobody remembers more, any one individual. Don't remember me. Don't remember. I just forget any of my involvement with any of this. And for people to think this last one, that this is the way it's always been. That's how you know it was a success because we can walk into these stations and apartments now. And I'm watching firefighters interact with clinicians outside of the clinical setting, but actually engaging in a modality. Saying, hey, we just had this call that just happened. This is what I'm struggling with. Can I talk to you for a second? Brilliant. They're comfortable with them. It works. Yeah, let's talk about it for a little bit and let's refer. Let's get you set up with your peer provider, seeing fully functioning peer support teams. So the clinician awareness program, astounding. They're putting on, I believe they've got two classes this quarter. They're producing uh, 60 clinicians a quarter and they're flying from all over the country to wow. take this class. Wow. Cigna, to tie into Cigna. Cigna Foundation, outstanding. Firehouse Subs Foundation. There was a chief over in, on the west coast of Florida that wrote a personal check and donated just to make this happen because it's saving their firefighters' lives. When you have a clinician that gets us ahead of the curve and lights their heart on fire, those are the people you want. They've got your ass. They've got your six. They get it. Now, one of the other interesting things I've seen, clinicians, and we're working with UCF right now, uh, they're a traumatized group. Think about this for a second in perspective. So what do first responders do? They train, they strive to help, they engage in other people's trauma, their worst day, their worst moment, 24 hours a day, five days a week, some of them seven days a week. And a lot of them have to sit and rarely see a resolve, long-term, long arc to recovery. And we're putting them into a highly traumatized population who is sustaining repeated moral injury. We are, and there is a concern that I have that I'd like to work on for the next generation, the next next podcast the concern of what the next uh 
division and generation of first responder mental health providers look like. I think you're going to see a shift, and I'm going to encourage this shift uh, heavily with with UCF, um, is I think you need to start taking your firefighters that get it, your law enforcement officers that get it, dispatchers, the whole 52-point first responder field. Forestry, don't think we forgot you. Uh, you know, the, the corrections division, don't think we forgot you. You're all, you're all first responders. Is I think that the next generation of this, uh, the providers that are going to be your, your, your superpower, superheroes in this, are going to be first responders that have completed their service and now become mental health care providers. Because what better way to have that, that working knowledge in a lifetime of it? Yeah, and I had a few of those on here, and they've been amazing. Yeah, because like phenomenal. you said, they they understand. You don't have mm-hmm. to put them in bunker gear and put them through a, a no, training. They've gone through it, and they yeah. recognize it like that. Oh my gosh, they're outstanding! So the clinician awareness program, we've we've put roughly three hundred and fifty plus clinicians through it uh, since two thousand seventeen, sixteen, somewhere around there. I, I, it's astounding. You can go on redlinerescue.org and start pulling them up. We've migrated them. Uh, so that clinician awareness program is now an autonomous machine. And uh, to build that relationship with the Bureau of Training and Standards, have it down to an orchestrated art form where we can come into one of these facilities, and it's a start-to-finish show. Within, you know, hands-on, in-classroom curriculum, uh, the, the learning objectives outside. You know, we did the JTA analysis and really found out what are the most impactful things that we can do to them. And I wish I would have known then we were going to have to make it that complex or I probably would have said, hey, there's an idea. Somebody else is probably better suited than me. <laughs> now, I want to ask you something quickly before we go on, because when we had our conversation, there were so many aha moments that I got from your story. Fast forward a little bit more. I interviewed Jake Clark, who's the founder of Save a Warrior, and he really opened my mind to the impact of childhood trauma on our professions and the impact, especially, I mean, as I, as I got more and more guests on the show that really poured their heart out, seeing the ones that either complete, you know, tried to complete suicide and survived or, you know, were stopped, like in your case, right before there was this common, common theme of, you know, some sort of childhood trauma. It might be very, very extreme, might be perceived as less, but was traumatic to the individual. So fast forward again, as my little, you know, kindergarten style brain starts processing all these amazing, you know, stories and, and, and lessons, it occurred to me in the multiple hiring practices that I've been in that I always did a polygraph, which I learned to lie my way through. And I'd say this all the time, and it's not to be condescending. It's because no firefighter is a damn choir boy. So the fact that you want us to be a white sheet of paper when we walk through is ridiculous. So it's smoke and mirrors. And then you have that ridiculous psych test. I forget the name of it now, but the thousands of bubble questions. So the budget's already there. You're spending X amount on the polygraph person and you know the, the tests being administered. You've already done a background check. You know if Dustin Hawkins has a criminal record, has been, you know, and any, anything that would stop you from hiring him. What is your um, philosophy on, we bring these young men and women in, we put them through PT, we put them through fire skills training, EMS training, during an orientation process that we give them three, four, five sessions with that competent clinician at the front door. So they have not only ability to forge a relationship with the clinician, but also hopefully an opportunity to offload some of the trauma so they begin to process that or even become aware of it before they're five, 10 years into their career and they have that Jenga moment. 
I, this is where I get to go. The, uh, the Oh my gosh, we know his true cards now. So for the Bureau of Training and Standards and listening, yes, it's a mastermind plan the entire time. Uh, the, the psychometric screening that you're talking about and the LEC uh, screening that they do, um, I think wholeheartedly building the relationship before, requiring multiple sessions uh, with a uh, culturally competent, effective clinician is a must. Because if we're bringing people in with baggage ahead of time, and for anybody that's listening to this, if you're the one that's going, I don't have any baggage, you've got a ton of baggage. And I forgot fact, my baggage. Yeah. I was in a house fire when I was four. I totally closed it off for the last, and not like it traumatized me so much as it just got compartmentalized so effectively by my brain that I, when I wrote the book, I was like, oh, oh yeah, that's probably why I became a firefighter. You know, so even if you don't feel like you're being haunted by it, like you said, we all have baggage. Absolutely. If you can understand your why, you can change your how. Truly, you can change your how. Uh, so I think that pre-screening is important. And I do know that a lot of firefighters can lie their way through a polygraph. No kidding. Absolutely. That's not a, that's not a shock or a surprise. You know, and, and any, any firefighter, law enforcement officer out there that does say, I've, I've, I've got a clean record. Sure, you legally may have a clean record, but you didn't get your sick sense of humor naturally. Yeah. And you, you know damn well when they ask, for example, if you've broken the law, you know, court. But I would say 95% of people out there that drink know damn well there was at least one time we were behind the wheel and we would have blown above. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, that polygraph, when you start thinking, you're not a damn quiet boy. Otherwise, you wouldn't go running towards bullets or into a burning building. I think the pre-screening is a huge deal. Uh, and I think you've noticed kind of my temperaments of going like this, this lofty utopia, like, let's do it. Let's change it. Like, oh, God, what are we else we're going to uncover here? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I do believe wholeheartedly you need to have a screening ahead of time. You know, I think about, uh, you know, the relationship with my parents that I have now. You know, my mom busted her ass her entire career. You know, I remember her tutoring at the kitchen table for, you know, 10 bucks an hour just to put us through. You know, I'm a recovering Catholic, went to Catholic school. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, and I think, you know, the, the man that my dad is now is an amazing man. You know, the man that he was raising, you know, it, you know, is, you know, through my, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, 10 year to maybe probably 12 year old age. He, he, my dad had a drinking problem. You know, he was, uh, you know, the, the man he was and the man that I know and admire and love and respect now, those aren't two same people. Um, and, you know, I think it's also where I look at, you know, my, my view on, uh, law enforcement, understanding the difference on how they're contacting control, you know, backs always to the wall. Everything's got to be structured. Every looking in the threat assessing, because I grew up in that. I grew up in that being up at zero 0600. Yes, sir. No, sir. Eye contact checklist, you know, and every morning if I, he, he would highlight out the punch list time and expectation for that to, to be taken care of and tended to. And if it wasn't, you're going to catch an ass whipping. You know, for the younger generation of firefighters out here, you can't, you know, you can't touch me. You can't hit me like, man, what a, what a different world I grew up in. You know, I mean, there was, you know, and at school, going to a Catholic school, you would get your ass whipped by the teacher. And then when you got home, you were going to get it again. You know, so I look at that and it's interesting component you talk about childhood trauma. I don't necessarily see my childhood as traumatic. It's what it was. It was the experience that I had. Did I learn some things? Absolutely. Did I, did I learn the type of person that I wanted to be and didn't want to be? Absolutely. Do I admire my parents for staying married through, through addiction, through, through struggles, through, uh, you know, domestics? Yes. Do I admire the man that my dad is now? Calm, soft-spoken, reserved, steeped in faith, sober? Damn right. That's a badass. Still in law enforcement reserves? Yes. 
Absolutely. Do I think that that impacts and affects me for the firefighter that I want to be, the father I want to be, the husband I want to be? Yeah, it does. And I think that goes right into trauma that you can take into the fire service or law enforcement. You have the opportunity for it to cripple you or shore you. And, you know, I think it was Mark Mark Twain, you know, talking about living, you know, living a multitude of lives, yep. you know, by reading. I think that for first responders, if you find that the traumas that you're experiencing are debilitating you in this career and you've gone and you've sought culturally competent care and peer support, which we got to talk about the journey of peer support. Good God almighty. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, how to change uh, the way you interact with your with your home life. Um, seeing trauma in our, on our job and finding out how short the brevity of life is, the snap of a moment, you can be snatched off this earth like the hand of God. Man, you can use it to live a really energized, positive life. Or even better yet, find the people and the relationships and the things in your life that just aren't good for you and cut that bullshit out. Because you know that you can get on that truck and you may not come home. Or you may kiss your family goodbye, go off to work, and your family is gone when you come home. They were hit by a drunk driver. The, the smoke detector didn't work and a home burn up. Your, your spouse overdosed on something inadvertently or purposefully. They went to the grocery store and got shot. Hell, you got sixth graders now that are going to school with automatic weapons. That may be the last time you put your hands or arms around your kids and just touch them and feel them and love them. Wish them the best. So putting in perspective that we have the ability in this field to take on a thousand different traumas. He used to say, Oof, man, that's too much. It's a lot and it will change you. And the sooner you recognize that it will, the better you have a chance to actually live an armored and enamored and positive life. You do. But you have to name it. You have to talk about it. And you have to have moments in your career that when it hits you in the feels, hit your knees. Be a human. Don't be a firefighter that intermittently has a human experience and all of a sudden shit hits the fan. Be the human being the entire time that happens to be a firefighter as a career. And you are going to have those calls. They're going to drop you to your knees. Don't hide. I don't hide it at all anymore. I used to go out to the shop, hit my knees, get shit house drunk, hide it. And then come home and go, okay, I got it all taken care of, guys. Everything's fine. I think of that Kevin Hart thing where he makes the skit. He goes, okay, I got it. Okay, okay, I got it. I got it. It's okay. I got it. Now it's no, I'm hurting. I'm struggling. This is what we're dealing with. This is the call we went on. This is the real fear I have. This is the fear I have in my home. Is it reasonable, rational? Can I do something with it? And it's amazing. With therapy, with practice, with meditative mindfulness and communication. Man, you, that on top of a library of trauma you can take on, you can live an engaging, thankful, and gracious life. Yeah, we talked about the cat program. I'll talk a little bit about peer support. Whew, so all you CISM people out there, we're going to give you a little bit of a notice right now. You're going to get butt hurt. Prepare yourself. Here we go. Peer support. Let's go with the utopian. Write it on a napkin. Should be easy, right? Find a firefighter that gets me, walks like me, talks like me. We're not even talking about putting them on red line rescue yet. Because in my mind, let's train the peer supporters, get their names, make sure they're good, make sure they're competent, give them a rating thing like you can do on Amazon and put them on red line rescue. Great, right, easy. Wrong. Holy cow. All right, so 
for the first two years of this, this Red Line Rescue mission, um, I had more struggle and strife from established do-good intent CISM teams that backdoored, lobbied, politicked, so they could remain relevant. Now, there are some really good CISM teams out there. So for those of you who are listening, your blood pressure is going up. There are some good CISM teams. For those of you who don't know it, uh, the, the, the Mitchell model, uh, CISM has been around at least 40 years. Okay, at least. It's been widely used, the diffusing debriefing model, the two-pass method. Um, there are effective teams out there. And I have worked with some CISM teams, uh, you know, on uh, February 14th after MSD. Um, I remember watching it on the news and getting a call uh, from the collaborative and talking with Chief Babnick that night. Lynn had just finished a chemo treatment. We're now looking down uh, at uh, the streets of Miami. And I remember watching it on the news and seeing it happen and then getting a text message, we need you here. I'm, I'm, at that point, I, I, look, I'm just an engineer. I'm just a hose dragger for Indian River County. I mean, I just happen to be in Miami. And they said, we need you. You know, that was the one time that I'm like, I wish I wasn't the mental wellness director for the this, for the state underneath the collaborative at that point. That was the one time when you're like, oh, shit. I'm not the right person. Um, and you see all those parts to see, you know, at, at that point they had the CRT, they had Sean Khan and Becky Trinzic and Andre Santiago and they had that CRT and they were all, they were all shitting bricks too. Like here, like the first established CRT team in the country for a fire department. And that's where this tragedy happens. The epicenter of this, like, okay, let's try the machine out. That's not how you want to try the machine out. You don't ever want that kind of crap to happen. Um, and so we, we were able to get peer support teams and CISM teams all to come in one place. And uh, so there are effective CISM models. I want to start with that plug. There are when they're led by firefighters, law enforcement officers, peers. Here comes the, the period after this. A CISM team is not a peer support team. A peer support team is not a CISM team. So when we approached the Bureau of Training and Standards again, thank you to, to Chief Tucker and, and Director Hallis and uh, retired uh, Chief Stone, uh, Melvin Stone, um, that we need a peer support. They said, okay, we're going to have to name it. We're going to have to track it. We're going to have to make sure the credentials are legit. We're going to have to do a curriculum crosswalk of all of the peer support training available. Uh, then we're going to have to bring it before uh, the council. And then we're going to have to impute it and put definitions, listing, tasking, and typing and put it into the NMAS system. I remember going home and going, are you kidding me? You talk about that moment like shaving in the morning, like, isn't there a whole division out here to do this stuff? And they're like, well, this is kind of a new field. So to have to get the nuts and bolts together to go pour through the NMAS and our, on, our, on our, our ICS system and find out that there is already tasking and typing for uh, CISM teams and for chaplains and then work backwards in the definitions. I mean, you don't talk about me feeling completely out of my league. Thank God uh, for uh, Chief uh, Vicki Shepard, who's also the treasurer for the collaborative, that that's her jam. That's what she does, curriculum crosswalks. And man, did everybody come out of the woodwork. We had great companies, wonderful training programs, people that saw blood in the water and let's make money. CISM teams and the, and, and the ICISF model trying to remain relevant, the IAFF coming in and trying to strong arm and say, we're the only peer support team. Oh my goodness. I had a crash course in, in lobbying and in, in politics. And oh my God. Yes. 
What I found in three and a half years of doing this, well, longer than that now, but of that point, peer support. If everybody had pulled their head out of it, I'm gonna, and I'm actually gonna, we're gonna do a segue. There was a, a speech that I gave, I think it was in Nova University, and the IAFF had come in and they said, we are the only licensed expert peer providing peer support training entity in the country. What I realized is everybody was just making up terms. And if you're the first and you make up terms and you said it with affliction and conviction, screw it, you must be true. And it was a pain in the butt. So uh, for the IFF members, I'm the IFF chaplain for the 2201. I have been a uh, IFF member for 20 years. Uh, so I'm in the mob, I guess. Uh, but, uh, you know, the IFF can do some amazing things. They can. And when their heart is right, they can do some amazing things. They can also slow up a lot of progress. And uh, we were we were in Nova, and I realized, hey, we got this CAP program going for Redline Rescue to work. I need peers. And in order for me to have peers listed at the state level, and secretly in the back of my mind, going, I'm going to get this squeezed into minimum standards. We're going to say the word peer support, and we're going to say Redline Rescue, and we're going to say CRT because if we can put it in the books, then it's permanent. If we practice how we play, then it's permanent. So we're going to do this. And we were in uh, we were in Nova. And the IFF, shortly after the podcast, to come in and say, hey, Redline Rescue is a great thing. We want it. Man, I was excited. Yes! The power of many to help one is fantastic. And um, what I found is the IFF does some things really, really well. They do marketing really well. They do advertising really well. And they do a phenomenal job of taking care of their members. Anybody outside of their membership, well... That's not their priority. And uh, there were some offers that were made. And one of the things that really wasn't a, a good fit for, for Redline Rescue is it was only going to be offered to IAFF members. Now, uh, when MSD happened, the IAFF came in and mobilized. They used our BHAP program and all of our statewide peer providers that we had already identified through uh, the collaborative um, ultimately to be parked on redlinerescue.org. And they're there now. But they came in. And it was interesting because we didn't have just IFF members. You know, we had uh, the North Carolina peer support. We had uh, the Illinois peer support. We had the IFF. We had the Nova React. We had the UCF Restores uh, Trained React program. And uh, what we found is, holy crap, when it hits the fan, you know, the, the union came together. And it didn't matter what badge you were wearing, what training you had. And they did, they did the right thing. Um, but I ended up having to give a speech in there uh, because it was shortly after couple weeks when i said hey we need to get a list of uh, peer providers and uh man cism came in and put a stop look peer support's not evidence-based they're not professionals we've been doing this for 30 40 years iaff was saying well if they're not iaff trained we're not going to deploy them well then the illinois peer support saying well if they don't take our course we're not going to let them in our state and north carolina was just a budding program and i was listening to this panel somebody's got it on video Apparently, I lost my mind on it. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm, I would have too. Uh, I, I'm listening to all this, and all I was asking was everybody to submit their curriculum. Let's do a curriculum crosswalk, methodology, delivery style, learning objectives. So I can track who's taking the class, and I can put all of these people in one spot. Because one department may say, we only like Illinois Pierceport or Nova or, or UCF or that. Great. But you dumbasses are fighting over who's got the best program and why the other ones aren't good. And then the ICISF came in 
with the SISM model and said, we're the only evidence-based and we have, and I just watched so much infighting that I ended up taking the microphone and I remember walking up. It was at one of the, the, the NOVA conferences. Which, uh, uh, was, which NOVA was that? I think it was Surviving the Fire Service Conference. Was it down south? Or? Yeah, it was down south. Okay. And uh, I, 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 I'm watching all the fighting and I'm watching all the politicking in the back and all I'm going is, my numbers are climbing. We hadn't hit the 113 yet. My numbers are in like the 60s at this point. I'm thinking when you guys are done making your program and inadvertently the best of the best and knocking the legs off of funding and appropriations and, 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 and LBRs going to LBIs in Tallahassee, which I didn't even know about at this point. I'm just learning. Going, I'm getting really good at funerals. When y'all are done and out of your three-piece suits and trying to bolster the funding for your micro program, I'm at the macro level watching firefighters jump off of overpasses, dealing with the aftermath of trying to explain to their kids what public safety officers' death benefits are because their, their father, their mother shot themselves in the head. And I'm the one that's getting called because I'm, I'm good at public speaking, because you want me to eulogize you, because I'm, I'm going to tie in scripture somehow to it, and I'm, I'm going to give you some sort of quote from, from, from a philosopher, and you're all going to feel good about this funeral. I got an idea. How, how about you motherfuckers come together for something? And stop saying ours is the best. How about saying ours is one tool? And we're not one size fits all because we're trying to serve a constituency that's as dynamic as any other public service in this world. We bring together all races, creeds, genders, biased, uh, uh, sexualities, preferences. And all of these people, regardless of what they pee out of or identify out of or the color or tone of their skin, come to help first responders. They come to help people as first responders because they care. That's how they're hardwired. What an awesome population to be that diverse and that dynamic and their hearts are all hardwired to help others. That's badass. And I'm watching you all politic over this and I walked up with the mic and said, listen, I don't care what you call it. I don't care where it comes from. If it's evidence-based and it's effective or worse, I want all of you to listen to the words coming out of my mouth right now. Pull your head out of your ass. You're spending so much time over fighting to be right rather than doing what's right and righteous to help others in their time of need because you want a name tag, because you want a bigger budget than the one next to you. Well, you know what? The next motherfucker that shoots himself in the head, you fold the flag. How about that? And the whole room went quiet. I went, good. Now we're human beings that have hurt in our hearts, but we need to have hope in our minds. Now put your damn stuff on the curriculum crosswalk, pull your heads out of your asses, and let's find out why it's working, and let's put it all in one place because you may not have a firefighter that has access to this robust program. There may be somewhere up in the panhandle, there's somewhere on the West Coast, or they're in a micro department or a massive department that doesn't believe in it. And let's give those people the opportunity for hope and healing. Let's give them the gift of kindness and grace that I got because my wife said something's wrong and she called my brother and he showed up. And by the gift of grace and God, I just got found. That's all it was. I got caught. I wasn't given a cry for help. I got caught. How about all the firefighters out there that aren't gracious enough and don't get caught? Or... Ask for help, and worse yet, ask for help and don't get the help that they deserve. So they finally took control over something. For all of those firefighters and law enforcement officers out there, when somebody says they've committed suicide, and I'm starting to hear first responders now change their vernacular, and it's neat to see it loop back around where we put it in curriculum. And I harped on this for 20 minutes at the State Fire College when we taught it for the first time. Change the way you speak, and you'll change the way you see the world. It's an absolute fact. 
change the way you speak. You'll change the way you think. You'll change the way you live, the way you interact, and the world around you will follow. If you don't believe it, turn into an asshole and watch how your friendly circle dissipates. Turn into a hopeful, optimistic, kind-hearted, soft-spoken, loving person that admits trauma and adversity, brings connectivity and community, and watch your circle grow. It's a real thing. It's an absolute real thing. So we saw this with peer support and everybody put their stuff on the wall. We did a curriculum crosswalk. Big shout out to Vicki Shepard uh, for helping out with the collaborative and uh, being the den mother. Uh, just a, she's, she's a, this woman is a, is a badass. She is a badass. And uh, to help us have rounded all these people together and uh, the SISM teams lightened up a little bit. I was able to tell them, listen, that's not peer support. CISM equates, and for those of you listening, I'm going to give you the best analogy that I possibly can on why and when CISM works and what it's built for. CISM is happening within 24 hours and a follow-up within 72. The reason CISM works when it's done well and what it's designed for, it's designed to catch that first responder who has and has experienced a post-traumatic stressful event and actually exhibits the signs and symptoms and is ready for help right then and there. Now, let me tell you why it doesn't work for the other 95% of it. Because it takes time to process it. Now I'm going to give a Larryism. So Larry Dolling, if you're listening, I miss you, you gruff bastard. Um, he said that uh, trauma is like a shit sandwich. So you got to eat it. You got to just get it all in your face. And you got to get it in your teeth. And you got to get it in your breath. And, and then that's that traumatic event. But the thing is, after you ate it, you got to process it. And it takes time to go through your entire system until you crap it out. And then you have to decide when you crap it out if you have to do something with it. Did you flush it and go down the toilet? Or do you have to cut it up smaller bits and beat that thing down with a stick? I know that's not my most colorful, beautiful euphemism and analogy. Um, but, uh, you know, the SISM response doesn't allow where most first responders are. We're resilient by design. And we talk about this in the family caregiver section. Humans are resilient by design. Uh, it takes time to process it. Whether it's a trauma in an early developmental fire that you may have experienced as a young man or something that you had on the call or a collective cumulative effect of calls, it takes time to process. So schism is not the perfect Band-Aid. That means that you have, to, you have to have that freak out moment. For everyone listening, freaking out is not a bad thing. And it's not breaking down either. I had somebody says, well, I had a breakdown. No, you didn't. You had a breakthrough. That means something has broken through and it's not a bad thing. And look at this trauma like a glow stick. Sometimes you got to snap to shine, sunshine. So give it that moment because there's no part in your life that is completely devoid of life. Maybe that breaking point, that snap was the opportunity to put light back in your heart. So change the way you speak about it. It's not a breakdown. Oh, I hit rock bottom. Well, now you make it feel like it's going to be tough to get up. No, how about you had a breakthrough? Give yourself a little pride. Give yourself a little confidence. So what it does is the schism only works if you have that breakthrough in that 24 or 72-hour period. So that's why peer support is so important because it's always live. It's always alive. And it's ready and you have those relationships and that rule of reciprocity when it counts. So once we finally got everybody to pull their head out of their ass after I was very, very inappropriate, uh, this is one of the few times I've ever completely unplugged my mouth, so I apologize. No, don't apologize. Uh, and we're, this we're, is a this is a safe space. This in, is a safe space. Redefined safe space. All right, we have, we, have, we, we identified. <laughs> he gave me a safe space card for all of our uh, academics and liberals out there. I had to show my card. We're in a cuddle room right now. <laughs> um, we, uh, we we were able to delineate. We were able to get the chaplaincies identified. We were able to get SISM teams identified, and we were able to get five peer support programs. And it was amazing. We got five of them. You know 
crosswalked, added into the end mass, and then um, Florida Fire Chiefs, huge supporter of the uh, collaborative and Redline Rescue, said, okay, well, now we need to make this deployable for large-scale assets. That was a whole nother, oh, my God, now we got to do typing. And I always kept feeling like I was drifting away from Redline. You know, it was like this, this, this huge barge. And I'm like, hey, land's right there. But I didn't realize how many other things had to happen to get that barge to load it up with the people in the ferry and back to help. But it was just always this feeling behind, you know, working seven days a week, still on shift. I was still doing my 56-hour work week and traveling back and forth and teaching and doing the clinician awareness program and type and tasking and public speaking events and going during that time period of talking about mental health, of trying to inspire people through their breakthroughs. And I started struggling with suicidal ideation again because it doesn't go away. That's one of the things I've learned. Ladies and gentlemen, it does not go away. And there's a difference between ideation and intent. Big difference. And the sooner you acknowledge the difference, that you can still go through resiliency training, teach and talk about it, be a champion in your organization, whatever that may look like for you, and still walk by after low sleep, poor diet, cocktail too many, and walk by a Mossberg 500A and know what it would be like if you stuck it in your mouth and shot yourself in the head. There's a difference between ideation and now an intent means to carry it out. So... When I talk to first responders that go through IOP, go through a recovery process, either go through therapy, I warn them once they get their sea legs under them, hey, well, you and I need to have a serious talk right now. I know we talked about the difficulty of reengaging with your family, taking the power away from tra- you know the, the traumatic weight and actually saying, hey, I'm struggling, I'm getting help. This is the things I need to work. Name it and let the power go. Uh, one of the things that you're going to have a tough time with is when you come back to shift or you go through a worker's comp case, which we're in Florida, we can do that now, which is amazing, um, is that I warn them, hey, you and I need to have a serious talk. This isn't going to go away completely. Um, And I'm going to teach you a few things that when you do have those thoughts that you can do to do a self-check, where are you at? Are you back to abusing substances? Are you not exercising? Or are you not communicating? And when you have that moment, let it be that trigger, that snap to shine light to go, hey, I need to get back to the things that work. Um, And it was tough, you know, right around that, that midst of Hey, we got an awesome clinician awareness program going. Look at all these clinicians that are coming in. I had no library place to put the books in the library. Like Redline Rescue's over here. We got to get this thing going. Like, let's go, people. While still doing funerals for firefighters reaching out. Like, okay, now we got peer supporters. Now I need to take these firefighters and I need to get them into a into this model. Put the books in the damn building, people. Um, getting pulled into the end mass. Uh, and I think you and I had a talk, you know, you're, I probably shouldn't say do your voice now that you know I can't. No, please do it. <laughs> like I said, this is a safe yeah, space. Mike, how's, how's Red Lawn Rescue going? How are we doing with that? Really excited about that. And I'm like, I'm excited too, but I'm a million miles away from it. Uh, and I think you and I, I had a, I had a pretty good rant with you. And I said, hey, um, uh, we're doing great. We're going to achieve it. It's going to work. Just dealing with some politics, dealing with some union stuff. We got everybody pointed, and and everybody was pointed back at the right right target again. Uh, and man, I hung up that phone, and and uh, I'm like, I don't think I'm gonna be able to pull this off. I'm not sleeping again. I'm having nightmares again. Um, everybody thinks miraculously I've got the answer to help them, and and I'm drowning. I didn't realize how painful compassion fatigue could be. All while still getting on the truck, and at that point being you know working in the, the company officer. Uh, and watching five lives that you're responsible for there, you know. And ironically, that was the only time, like I've told people, it's the only time I felt in control was when I was on the truck because I knew the limits of what to expect. Mm-hmm. No matter the crazy stuff we saw, I knew the limits. Um, 
So I didn't know there was some doubt. You know, the political side when we're talking, you know, in Tallahassee, absolutely. We never had a doubt. We were always focused. We were, you know, goal-oriented, task-driven. We had awesome support. And we did. And we still do. We have amazing support. But there was a lot of times where I'm going, I don't think we're going to pull this off. Like that motorcycle jump. Like, oh, yeah, go ahead and get it, Evil Knievel. You're going to do great. You're going to fly through it. you got enough horsepower. You have enough training. You're going to do this. And then once the crowd fades out and you start to motor, you're going, I think I'm actually going to burn the other end of this ramp. There's no way in hell I'm going to make this. But I knew we needed to because we had that many people that needed it that we had to. Um, so we got the peer support training going. We approved five. Um, you know, we had Illinois peer support, North Carolina, uh, Nova Southeastern, the IFF, uh, UCF. Um, that were incumbent for our, our um, uh, academics, which was cool to have, you know, universities come forward. Yeah. Because they had never cracked into this population. They've never had the opportunity to dive into the first responder field of the most traumatized, potentially traumatized population globally. You know, we talk about all of our veterans that give us the right and a big shout out. We're able to speak one language under one God, one flag, and 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 have diversity and freedom of speech and freedom to exercise our beliefs because of our veterans. So any firefighter out there, law enforcement officer, it is a veteran. Y'all are badasses. Any veteran that's come back here and given us this right to do what we're doing right here, right now, even if somebody's strolling through these podcasts, you see somebody that, that that's a veteran. Pay attention to the ink on their arm. Pay attention to the scars on them. Pay attention to the to to to, to the unit that they were involved with, because most of them are loud and proud, even if they're not appreciated to wear that. Stop what you're doing and thank them. Stop what you're doing and thank them because they gave you this right to do what you're doing right now, no matter what career you're in. And it's astounding. And I'm thankful for that. Sorry, I always, I always have to. <laughs> no, don't apologize. Because I, they're, they, they're, to me, in my heart, they're my heroes. Absolutely. Teachers, law enforcement officers, veterans, they're my heroes. And, you know, it, it's amazing that, that academia was never able to crack into us because, you know, they, they, they were, trying as hard as they could to focus on a population and tenure of, you know, looking at what the VA does. Um, you know, these, these men and women go serve and give. They don't come back the same. Especially the last 20 years. Hell no, they don't. Uh, and, you know, for talking with academia, I said, well, you guys have looked at first responder field. They're like, no, we've been focused so on the population that's working two-year, three-year, five-year, seven-year, or 20-year out, you know, enlisted. Um, and trying to crack in there. We never realized what it would mean to work with first responders that are constantly flipping back and forth, switch on, switch off for 30, 35 years. Um, so amazing for Nova Southeastern and University of Central Florida to step up when it wasn't popular, it wasn't funded, it wasn't discussed, and to divert their programs to go, hey, we got something here. See, it's interesting because that's where Becky's going to school. So I'm going to have to go Fantastic. learn more about that too. Fantastic. Get someone from there on here. So she's going to be going to Nova? Yeah. Fantastic. She needs to talk to Dr. Vince Van Hassel. Uh, Vince, uh, we're going to give you a shameless plug here. Uh, and I'm also going to talk about Dr. Beidel and UCF and UCF Restores. But uh, Dr. Vince Van Hasselt, a hostage negotiator, a cop, uh, amazing hairline. We call him Steve McQueen. Uh, he always looks like he just came, you know, finished that that, that unbelievable motorcycle uh, ride on a Royal Enfield or BSA and rolled underneath razor wire, popped up from the Germans, and his hair looks tight. The Great Escape. Yeah. Love it. I love it. <laughs> So and for those of you who haven't watched Great Escape and don't understand the analogy for that, you need to. We're missing modern, you know, the, the cinematography flair in modern age is nothing. Steve McQueen's a badass. Uh, but uh, I do call Vince Steve McQueen. But uh, yeah, Nova Southeastern and their training, uh, suicide prevention and their, uh, their react training is, is, is phenomenal. And uh, Vince... 
Dr. Van Hasselt, uh, is just been a restorer of faith uh, in academia, which I didn't realize you want to talk about red tape in Tallahassee. You should see academia. Really? Good God almighty. Well, I mean, I say really. I, I talk about that quite a bit because I went through higher education and I'm still paying off a very large, you know, student debt and get calls all the time for donations and i'm like how does this work yeah it's, i'm it's sorry wild. what it's wild but, <laughs> so uh, anyway but anyway, back yeah, to no, the story nova's fantastic um and uh very supportive of the collaborative and very supportive of that next step so now we've got the cap program going we've got peer support people trying to trick in we're trying to wrangle it because they had no place to plug in their members and fc dice was an antiquated system that's struggling with the data they've got let alone a whole new field of credentialing to try and track and, and, and just, God love the, the Bureau of Training and Standards. I mean, the, 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 the group up there is working on a shoestring budget, busting their ass to manage 190,000 plus first responders and their credentialing. And now, hey, by the way, we need you to do peer support as well. Talk about uptight. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that next step was, was working in uh, the, the, the wonderful, wonderful place known as Tallahassee. To talk about Senate Bill 376, to talk about presumptive law, and a big shout out to, to the senators that really pushed and lobbied for this, and the titans that really stepped forward and got their, their, their ass handed to them initially, and then to get into appropriations and funding. Um, now, what was the resistance? Like, what, what kind of person looks at a bill that makes mental health in responders that we know are going to do and see things that most people would never, ever want to do and hit the no button when that's presented with them? It's simple. What's it going to cost us? Uh, you know, we get that question a lot with uh, 376 about that 52-week qualifier. Oh, so this came out of their own personal bank accounts? Is that what you're saying? Uh, I know. That's, that was my response, too. <laughs> yeah, I think you and I went on a probably I'm a pretty four- sure I pay taxes. Yeah, so it's- I think you and I went on a four-hour tirade when I, I used this. <laughs> I used like all four of my F-bombs in one year in one setting. Uh, I got plenty more for you. Yeah, perfect, yeah I got a whole pocket full of them. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it was stunning to me because I was still I, – I, I was coming in tired and a broken heart because we were still sustaining – suicides uh back to back to back while trying to balance academia saying we need to train your clinicians differently and i see a pattern and i saw a pattern then and we're going to get into the algorithm now you know coming up here on on, there is a pattern uh and it's not just a universal well if anybody goes through a tough time with their family and tough time financially i could see how they have you know suicidal tendencies no i know with first responders a matter of fact um they're going to have struggle in the relationship deal with trauma on the job and breakdown in communication that's going to fall over into their job task performance where they're not going to be able to perform work. It's going to turn into a disciplinary or it's going to do a financial exacerbate the relationship and boom, I got a suicidal firefighter. I've got it down to a timeline where I can actually deconstruct, do that, that post-mortem autopsy in their life and we can look at the way their life fell off and it typically takes about six months. It's sad that you got a huge sample size to study. Disturbing. And those are the people that are reporting Hell, we had, we had firefighters recently that would go to a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head, and they were saying that it was respiratory arrest and cardiac failure. Oh, I see all the time now. It's like they, they passed away. Okay, all right, so that was an overdose or a suicide. Yes. Why can't we just say it was an overdose or a suicide? So Those we can fam- start yeah, addressing to, it instead of sweeping under the carpet. And that's like the shifting of the vernacular that, that, I, that I task people with when we talk about suicide, when we talk about departments that have, that have sustained a suicide. Name it. 
God dang it, don't hide from it. Name it. You're doing an injustice because I guarantee you if you just had somebody in your community, your department that completed suicide, that's the only one that you knew of. You have others that are struggling with it and are exacerbated by it. Name it. Say it what it is. They completed suicide, not committed because damn it, it's not a crime. I think we said it in the original podcast, show me a statute where it's against the law to take your own life. There isn't one. And you're asking a human being when somebody goes, well, they're weak, they're broken, they're fractured. That was a cowardly way out. Bullshit. They were overriding their most innate intertwining thread in the tapestry of who they are to survive. And anybody who says, well, they were weak, that's why they did it. Then you know what? I'm going to fill a five-gallon bucket full of water. You stick your head in there. Don't take your head out. And when you do pull your head out of gas your ear, I'm going to bitch slap you. You are designed to survive when somebody hits the point where taking their life is the only thing that they feel they have control over. And we talk about that first responder becoming peaceful in the last couple days or moments before because they finally had control over something when they lost every other facet and faction and fraction of their life. So they weren't weak. Are there tangible scars and effects that come from that? Yes. It fractures families, departments, communities, countries. You're not thinking about those things. You finally feel that you have peace in your heart. And when you feel that you are the bearer and, and, and messenger and deliver that everything you touch turns to shit, everything that you deal with at your department, every call you go on goes poorly because you exist, your family suffers because of you, you start finding peace and resolve and comfort that your family's better off if you weren't there. Which, mate, I have heard so many times now, and I always preface that now. We're told it's a cowardly thing to do. It's, you know, how could you do that? How could you leave with your family? Well, like, just like you said, imagine if your brain is so miswired that the solution to your family's pain is you taking your life, which we all know is the absolute polar opposite. But it's not just Dustin Hawkins telling me this. I have had probably a hundred people on this podcast that either jumped, you know, like Kevin or, you know, survived like emma benoit who shot herself and ended up in a wheelchair initially all those people said the same thing i felt like i was a burden and obviously there's that i wanted the suffering to end which is the other thing but i felt like i was a burden so at that moment in that distorted state it was a selfless act not a selfish act you're damn right absolutely you know that's why when we go back and we see you know all the credit card debts transferred to the deceased you know, I went and put, made sure my life insurance policies were in order. Looked at all of the different facets of shooting myself or overdosing or hanging myself. And that's where, no, diving accident. That's perfect. Nobody's going to think anything. The only people they're going to know is Lynn when she finds a note. She's going to protect me. And she's protected. And we look at those firefighters of looking and preparing to protect their family where we're so consumed with that point of that immediate void of that loss of life that very rarely do people get all of the facets of all of the things that they did before leading up to it. Um, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was a huge challenge um, to give data and input and guidance and, and to work alongside some awesome, you know, uh, senators. One of them, Senator Book, just to, to, to have pushed as hard uh, and backed pushing 376. Um, to see that come to fruition... To know that, uh, you know, we were in the definition of PTSD. 
and I know we've talked about this before, and I talk about this in classes, and I put up the uh, DSM-5 where it was listed, and uh, we were referenced as the population as the poster child for post-traumatic stress disorder. It, it literally, we used to read, you know, experiencing and witnessing, uh, you know, egregious bodily harm or injury, uh, or ex- repeatedly experiencing or individually experiencing traumatic events that much like a law enforcement officer or firefighter. We were in the definition. Like, we didn't even know it. Like, hey, we were the ones that they were pointing at, you know, as by the way, uh, when we say you had PTSD, you're probably screwed up like these people. We were in the Truman Show the whole time. Had we no were. Idea. We didn't know people were looking at us. Like, mm-hmm. hey, by the way, these guys are really messed up. <laughs> Shh, don't yeah, tell don't them. Let them know we're using them as an example. Don't shake the ant farm. I think they're sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> so they, um, to see now that you didn't have to have that accompanying physical injury to be compensated. Um, and, and I want to talk about compensation for a second here. Um, one of the big holdups uh, when we'd originally presented this to the Florida Fire Chiefs and the association is, okay, well, now everybody's going to have PTSD. And, you know, I talked to people about PTSD. I said, look, everybody's going to experience post-traumatic stress. You are. Whether it's very neutral and minute, you can't even spike, you know, the endorphin and the cortisol, you know, dump in your body and the norepinephrine response. Uh, it, you're having, you experienced a traumatic event. You may not see it as traumatic. Your body responded appropriately, okay, or inappropriately to what is your normal life that you want. Uh, it doesn't mean you're going to have PTSD. It's not herpes. It's not like you're licking doorknobs and toilet seats. Um, so you can unmask for this one. Welcome to 2021. Uh, the uh, challenge that was we were fighting is if we make this a presumption rule, it's actually a presumption law, and we have a bill. Uh, to support it. Well, now we're going to have a bunch of people that are full of crap. Everybody's got PTSD. And you know what? They were right. We had a lot of people that came forward that were full of crap. And, you know, I've I've had to work directly with some of those knowing they're full of crap. Uh, And it's a challenge. I even had a firefighter. We'll we'll let this firefighter, I'm going to give a non-gender specific, non-location based thing. So this is is, uh, for academia out there. This is my best attempt at this. I had to take a class uh, to be sensitive. This firefighter, this non-binary firefighter, not non-binary uh, firefighter, yes, uh, that identifies as a octopi, um, reached out and reached out for help. And the administration department said, "Hey, we need you to talk to this this guy." So worked with the department, worked with risk. They reached over. We were all trying to make a plan for this, and I was able to talk with this non-binary firefighter. And I, within fifteen minutes listening to what this firefighter was saying. I'm like, this sounds awfully familiar. And after about another five minutes, he had listened to my podcast that I did with you. He was telling you your story? Telling me my story. Are you serious? Verbatim with the exception of being burned. Telling me about the nightmares and what they were seeing and putting body bags together and specific calls in there. And I'm thinking, son of a... So I asked a couple questions. This, this firefighter had been on the job about five years. So I'd kind of done some homework about some of the special ops stuff, and I had gotten with some of his administration and said, I just need to kind of see what his certifications are and just find out the backstory where he was at, call volume. Had been at a station that hadn't experienced any of the calls that he was saying he had felt. And that's when I realized this firefighter was reading a narrative to me. So when we talked with the administration about this, said, look, I'm not a doctor. I got a pretty good bullshit meter. I can't make this determination. The reason that we have a Senate bill in place, the reason we have workers' comp docs, let the doctors do what they need to do. It'll come out in the wash. 
as they say. And, 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 it, and, it, and more often than not, high percentile, if you have a first responder that's playing the system, it's going to come out in the wash. So for those entities out there or states that are listening that are trying to work towards presumption, look, you're going to, you're going to have that fear. You're going to have your, your, your politicians. You're going to have your rulemakers. You're going to come in and say, hey, if we put this as a billboard, we're going to have people that come forward and full of crap. What I want to inspire you with is you are going to have that. Well, the military self-report, don't they? Yes. So, of course, they do. Mm-hmm. You know, And then there's obviously a, a huge amount that have it, whether it's di- directly related to combat, whether it was some other trauma that's still you know, pertaining to their job. But then, of course, you know, you, you're going to get the, you know, all the workman's comp abuse. But that's you right. don't not create it because of the, the anomalies that's right. who are so self-serving that they'll risk ruining it for everyone else. Did you deny a workers' comp claim for somebody who had a shoulder injury that didn't have a shoulder injury and you set the PI on them and all of a sudden they were playing golf and basketball and all those other things when they weren't in uniform? No, you put that presumption in for musculoskeletal injury and attribute it to a job-related injury or a specific call. You send them to a specialist and you put them through those modalities until they're either MMI'd or they're going disability. So what I would inspire anybody who's working with local politics, with whether it's at the micro, macro, or mezzanine, it should scare you more to not have a presumptive law for a firefighter that needs it and didn't have the presumptive law than to have had it and then had someone scam the system and got caught later. You got 113 reasons why you should I have got 113 it. intimate reasons on why. 100%. That had the right that deserved to have a culturally competent clinician, a trained peer provider, that deserved the right to have a workers' comp system that gave them the opportunity. Now, here's one of the things that I also want to put on here. We um, had the opportunity uh, to work with uh, Jeremy Hurd quite a bit uh, and teach through the collaborative and in, in, in the Hurd group uh, to do a suicide um, prevention class, and it's kind of a misnomer. So this is one of the things I want to say. People raise their hand. They go, okay, Dustin's going to talk about suicide. Let's, let's get their notebooks out and let's talk about the different signs and symptoms and how it manifests and what to say and what not to say. And one of the things I tell them is like, slide number one, suicide prevention. Okay, we all can go home. It's not possible. It's not. And the sooner you realize this, the more engaged and the more tenacity I want you to fight when somebody needs help to get them the help they deserve. But you need to be prepared right now, no matter how many classes, no matter how many programs, no matter how many peer providers, no matter how many IOP scholarships you write. Even if you put them in bubble wrap and you do the thing that drives me nuts. Hey, buddy, how you doing? Doing okay? No matter how much soft speaking you do to a firefighter who's expressed suicidal intent and put foam noodles around them and take their truck keys and blunt off chopsticks and take away firearms. If that firefighter wants to complete suicide, they're going to. People kill themselves in prison. You damn right they do. With a sheet. Yeah. Or a shoelace. Yeah. And it's funny because I had, um, not funny haha at all, but um, I had uh, Pat Kenny and he lost his son. And he had a great term for it, a tragically, you know, accurate, which was terminal depression. Mm-hmm. Like, like you said, how long will it be until they do take their own life? So that exists. But I mean, you know, obviously what you're talking about is ultimately if they get there, they get there. But there are so many more people that you're going to stop before. And if we can just change one and, and that that's. 
look, for first responders, that's what you're hardwired to do. And some people say, you know, I always wanted to be a firefighter because I this or because I uh, experienced something or I had a loss of a home or an injury or a burn or a firefighter saved my life. Whatever the case may be, if you're in this field and you're really in it, I don't mean you're just trying it out and holding weed for a friend. I mean, you're really in this field. Um, you try and make a difference in one person's life. One call, one step, one moment at a time. It's how you're hardwired. So with mental health, with suicide prevention, peer support, culturally competent clinicians, we only need to say one, one life, one at a time. And that's the only way we can do this. And that was every morning, whether it was getting off of a, a back-to-back 48 or working the 56-hour work week and running a, a business, working at midnight, making straps while everybody else is sleeping, you know, going back and forth through through chemo with, with, with my wife and driving down to Miami and then heading to Tallahassee to go and speak and then teaching a cap class and going, I've been up for 18 days and I'm only getting four-hour blocks of sleep. You know, it was that moment and I'm not encouraging this kind of behavior by any means. Looking in the morning and shaving with exhaustion, it just takes one. Let's just say just one. And it was that push because I knew there was a better system rather than trying to be the one person. And I wasn't. I was never alone. And I want to point this out. The Health and Safety Collaborative, the Clinician Response Teams, the Bureau of Training and Standards, the FPF, yes, even the IAFF. Once everybody put their heads together and pointed in the right direction of saying, we just need to make a difference for one, one at a time. Um, I was never alone and I never, it was never an I thing. It was always a we and us for support um, is what, what I realized um, is we needed to just push a little bit harder. And we do that really well as firefighters. Just push a little bit harder. And my favorite saying, I just, <laughs> that's dangerous. That's some dangerous terminology. Well, I just, no, you don't. You, you need oxygen. You need water. You need affection, love, and connectivity. That's it. You don't just need anything. You don't just need to go get a Ferrari. I don't just need to study a little bit harder. I don't just need to get the certification. You don't need those. Are there good things to aim for? Ferrari, if you want to donate a car to Behind the Shield. I, <laughs> I would never be seen dead in a Ferrari. Uh, um, <laughs> My Nissan Sentra is perfect. Uh, you like that? <laughs> We're just trying to plug that one in there. Uh, we just need something fuel efficient. Uh, the, um, the I just methodology, I always had this picture in my heart of we need to get red line rescue because one person cannot be the everything for everyone. And I didn't mean that with me. I mean, I'm just thinking about every peer provider out there, every clinician. If we don't get a bigger system, once we've pointed this giant spotlight on it, I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to overrun the clinicians. I'm going to beat up the handful of peer supporters and we're going to collapse this system as a whole. We have to think bigger picture. And that's where, you know, that other side of that uh, napkin came in. You know, at that point, we had clinician awareness programs running quarterly, Cigna Foundation funding it, had an army. Oh, my gosh. I mean, we had an army of people and still do with the collaborative that are continuing to put this class on. Uh, you know, we had uh, multiple clinicians invest in that and organize it and make that program awesome, you know, to look at, you know, Sean Kahn and Andrea Santiago and Becky Trinzik to step up and help with that class the way they did uh, is astounding. 
And uh, so that's going on one side. We're putting these clinician awareness programs, populating lists of clinicians that are on fire. I mean, they are. And I guess I can say that on fire, right? I mean, I got the scars to prove it. Um, yeah, <laughs> on fire about this. And then peer providers. We're watching peer classes populate. We're building this list. Uh, and then now we're, we're working into a presumption state. Lynn just came around the corner and gave me the face. I'm not supposed to make any burn jokes. See, she doesn't like, so for, for all of those listeners uh, that thought that the bacon man that everybody made, mm-hmm. Lynn does not find that shit funny. <laughs> and Jeremy Hurd made a mistake that almost got him killed one night. He made a, we were sitting at dinner one night and uh, he, we were talking about, hey, we're, when's Redline Rescue coming? And we had taken a couple really heavy blows along the way of trying to find, you know, will the Bureau of Training and Standards hold it? No, we can't because, you know, they're going to be in charge of managed medical care do we give it to Cigna no because then it's marketing we can't give it to the IFF they only represent one let's go to academia and the first time we went to UCF they they didn't they didn't they couldn't take it they had too many other programs and projects going on uh and couldn't take it so we had just sustained blow after blow of like okay great we've got these clinician programs we came over all these insurmountable odds of putting clinicians on fire grounds and getting all of these learning objectives and getting to where we can provide CEs for Licensed clinical social workers all the way up to PhDs. Mind-boggling. Firefighters teach, and I'm like, wow, they'll let anybody teach these guys. <laughs> um, I say that tongue-in-cheek. They have an awesome curriculum that, that's been developed over years. Uh, then, you know, we've got the peer support. Now we need to get Redline Rescue. I need somebody to write my algorithm. I need somebody to take this sketch on this napkin and write this rule engine. And, you know, I got a bunch of firefighters going, rule what? I said, well, it's an algorithm. It's a rule engine checksum that if we take the science of trauma, because there's a pattern, because I, I, I'm doing these funerals. I know there's a pattern. I know there's a pattern that I went through. I know there's a pattern that I'm watching all these other first responders go through. And if we put math to this, we can identify at what point, at what exposure, and what pain is a threshold that's going to put them at alert level. I know there's a math to this. And if we get somebody to write the rule engine, then we can launch this website. Having no idea. Listen, I've never launched a website. I've never written a uh, 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 code. Uh, I've, I've never written rule engines. I've never designed. I'm thinking, okay, we did all this. And I remember sitting at the computer going, well, I guess I got to figure this out. Big shout out. I had a company called Growth Squad that came in to help me write the wireframe. Uh uh, John Paquette and Jeremy Harris, civilians, both of them. And uh, we actually sat here. I told him, I said, hey guys, uh, this is what firefighters go through. And we talked for almost six hours. I need to write an app, basically like a dating app for firefighters, but trauma. So I need you to help me design something and write a rule engine to uh, list clinicians, give them a rating and value, list peer providers, give them a rating and value, like type, experience, exposure, injury, religious beliefs, rank structure, file, training. And then I need to do a GIS mapping and I need to drop them into a pin and allow a firefighter to access it confidentially at, for free, anytime, any day, anywhere. I need it to look good. And both of them have tears running down their face when I tell them and I'm showing them pictures of firefighters just that week that I've worked with that have killed themselves. Here's the, this is what happens. This is your why. And these two men stood up from Grow Squad and they were like, look, we do, we do, we do marketing and business design and, and, and oh my God, yes, we'll do this. And they did it. And they built this wireframe so I could go back to the Bureau of Training and Standards and say, this is what we're doing. This is what we need to do. And um, 
I remember that night, you know, we talk about the joke. We, we'd gone to, to, um, to UCF and they were, they awesome program. They do the UCF restores, uh, just Dr. Beidel. Um, I feel like this is one of those things, like if you're listening, Delilah. Um, so Dr. Beidel, uh, we, we'd gone and we'd presented, we didn't have the chance to meet her at first. Uh, and we presented this and they just had, they had such a massive program going on that Redline Rescue skipped underneath the radar. And um, I'd come home and just broken. Uh, you know, I'd driven up with uh, Chris Bader, president of the organization, and uh, we came back and um, like, man, we did all this. How can they not see the value in this? And uh, I remember just collapsing at the table and, and just crying, going, "I failed." You're like, "Shit, I'm gonna have to tell James we couldn't do it." <laughs> That wasn't the first thought, but it was, I failed. And, um, you know, I just remember that, that, that moment of just like sewing up weight in my BC. And uh, just knowing I failed again. You know, like it was too big of an idea. It was too big of a mountain. It was, um, you know, maybe it was good enough. We got peer support done. Maybe. We got this clinician awareness program. I don't think I can teach this much longer. You know, um, like, man, we got through this. We got through, we're battling through cancer. You know, I spent damn near a year. My wife not even remembering my name. I can figure that out. I can, I, I, I can, I can figure out how to do CAD design and, 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 and patent a laser process to, to, make a product to help reduce risks to firefighters so they're not bringing carcinogens home from the IDLH. I mean, I gave Lynn cancer. I wore a leather strap and brought this shit home and hung it on a key hook. I can, I can, I can, I can invent a better way to do that, but I can't talk a university in, in, into an IT division to take this wireframe and make it work. Like, you want to talk about feeling like a piece of shit because it wasn't, oh, I fell short. What are people going to think? It's, I'm going to have to hear the bagpipes again. Another marriage is going to fail. Another asshole is going to hand somebody a generic EAP brochure and there's a firefighter out there, a law enforcement officer right now that's calling some first-year postdoc grad student that's going to start crying and going, I've never heard something like this. And it's going to be a firefighter that's going to complete suicide because we didn't do a good enough job. Did I not explain it right? Was it the wrong person? Was was it was it the wrong time? I mean, maybe maybe this was like talking about cancer prevention ten years ago. It just wasn't the right time. It needed the right place, right message, right time. You know, maybe Redline was like real estate. You just had to have the right market. And um, you know, I remember sitting at that table, and everybody's like, "Oh, it's going to be okay. Stay positive. Stay there." And I just, I was tired. Um, how could people not see the importance in this? And what I realized was, is unless you lost a family member, unless you were the one folding up their underwear, figuring out what to do with their socks, figuring out what scripture to say at their eulogy, or bleaching down blood spatter and brain fragments out of your drywall, unless you were the one holding your best friend up out of the field and realizing that he shot himself with a gun you bought him on his birthday, and you gave it back to him after the first time he did something egregious with it. 
six months before. Until you feel that and you live with that and you look yourself in the eyes, in the mirror and saying, I didn't do enough and you know what your why is, you're not going to understand it. And I know that we have so many brothers and sisters that are on this that listen to this that know. They know what it looks like to stare themselves in the mirror, to feel like an absolute failure and remember the name tags, remember the feeling of folding the flag, remember how shitty you felt when you handed the spouse the helmet and you thanked them. And and I just, I was ready to give up. You know, absolutely. And um, Jeremy Heard was at the table that night for dinner and he actually made a joke. And uh, he reached over and goes, it's okay, buddy. Can I touch your scars? Just trying to be a fireman. <laughs> now, Lynn was at the table and she almost, she almost killed him. We almost had a homicide at the house because she, <laughs> she didn't find that funny. Because, you know, that's the difference between firefighter humor and family. You better know the right right thing. And uh, she almost killed him that night. Only time I've ever seen her angry with, with Jeremy. Um, but, uh, you know, I realized that let's try again. Tomorrow's, tomorrow the sun's going to rise. Whether you, whether you recognize it or like it or not, the sun is going to rise again tomorrow. And, uh, the only choice that you really have is, are you, are you going to be there to greet it? Is it going to be easy to get there? No. Is it going to be a long night? Yeah, it could be. Are there tools and techniques that you can use to, to, to lessen that burden? Yes. Are they always going to work? Nope. Uh, but it's going to come tomorrow. And, uh, and it did when we tried again and we had, you know, I got, I got, as, as, as I like to say, rented and pimped out in all kinds of different ways, you know, different classes and programs and special, pro, you know, appropriations and grants. And, and, and here's what I found. Director Julius Hallis, that, that man's awesome. He had a vision the entire time to watch and say, we're going to have you at the right place, the right time. Mike Tucker, Chief Tucker. Man, not only just through cancer, but just having faith in a scarred up firefighter. I mean, <laughs> look, I mean, you're, 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 if you're listening, you're, you're way older, way uglier, way slower. Um, <laughs> I can feel him smiling right now. Mother after me. <laughs> um, but, but you, but you had faith in a firefighter that, um, that talked about feelings when it wasn't uh, popular and appropriate. And I thank you. And, um, leadership, my, my, my new chief, Chief Stone, Chief Tad Stone. And Chief Melvin Stone from from retired from Bureau of Training and Standards. Um, it's amazing to go from a department that was responsible for the reason I am scarred. I won't trade my scars for anything. They don't make me who I am. I am who I am and decide to be that person every day, every thought, every word, every action. And if I stray, I'm thankful for those scars. They're better than tattoos. They're a perfect reminder of the person I want to be. And know where I came from. And know what dark shit I'm capable of. And choose the light over the darkness. But to have a chief that was an absolute... To my previous chief, you taught me many lessons. And I thank you for them. None of them are kind. None of them are gracious. And none of them will I ever emulate. I thank you for teaching me to be the leader that I choose to be. Thank you for giving me the inspiration of how not to be a leader, how not to guide people, how not to protect people. So I could recognize what it means to be a good one. To my current chief, Chief Stone, thank you for showing me what it means to be a leader in a wonderful way. To have been a fire chief in multiple departments and admitted, I didn't like this feeling stuff, but man, I'm losing a lot of my family members in this service to this. To be open about his own struggles 
his own loss, his own pain through firefighters that he's lost and to support it and to have come on the heels of an administration where one of them left in shame and the other one's in prison and to have been told, don't trust your chaplain, that feelings guy. He's saying things that aren't popular at the state level. He's saying things are going to change the way presumptive laws are. He's saying things are going to change the way firefighters are taught. Avoid him. And he watched. Instead of doing what firefighters do, listen to other firefighters talk shit and believe them, he listened and made a decision for himself and he treated me and 350 other firefighters in Indian River County like human beings. And you know what? Chief Stone, you are one of the members that are responsible for the way curriculum has changed. You played a role. You played a part because you encouraged, not discouraged. You invited, not divided. <laughs> so for fire chiefs out there, if you are part of the problem, don't just get out of the way. Change the way you're doing business. If you have a firefighter that's talking about something, designing, different, doing, that can help others and their why is right, empower them. Put them in the garden and let them grow. Don't stamp them out like a weed because it's not popular. That's my gardening plug for you. <laughs> so now we've got red line. We've got all these things moving. We got clinicians getting trained, peer providers, uh, providing peer support, creating a best practice and BHAP model, publishing articles and letters. And you want to talk about feeling every single time somebody says, will you write something, will you speak? I feel inferior. Um, I'm not the right person. Uh, I'm not smart enough. Uh, I don't have any... Uh, it's neat to see words and language in a textbook that are going to change the way firefighters are trained and I help write it. I'm a high school graduate. I don't have a single college course, not one. I always let the feeling of being insignificant and feeling inferior of a reason to drive me to do better and to help one human at a time, one place at a time. Um, what I found is, is not one uh, degree is actually equated to anything when you are putting in urn. So every fiber of carbon that I am, I want to make a difference in people's life one person at a time. And what I can tell you is you don't have to be um, in an office with a wall full of plaques. But if you do, and you have somebody come in, don't discount them. Um, moves me to UCF and Dr. Beidel. <laughs> what an embodiment of an articulate, educated, eloquent tenacious, vibrant soul that loves first responders, takes them from trauma and, 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 and brings them back to life. That doesn't discount the firefighters' work because they're going to bust their ass to do it through that program. Um, but uh, while trying to balance and doing one-on-one -on -one case management with professionals at IOP facilities, firefighters all across the country at all hours. And yes, for those of you who have tried to reach out to me, to my number that you used to have, no, it does not work anymore. It does not mean I don't love you. It does not mean I don't care about you. It means that uh, I, um, I wanted to create a bigger, better program uh, and I couldn't do it. Uh, I couldn't fight the wildfire fight in one candle at a time. Every one of those flames matters and it was important. But what was happening is, is uh, we were burning the damn forest down. Um, because time truly is the only asset and commodity that you have. And I was running out of it. I couldn't stay awake for more than 24 hours at a time answering calls and emails and text messages. Uh, so while we were doing all that, we went back to UCF to pitch. And I met Dr. Deborah Beidel. 
I know in academia we're not supposed to say this, but that is one badass woman. Yes, I named her gender UCF. I'm very, very sorry. I'm not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to be very uh, biased. Um, but uh, <laughs> showed uh, showed her red line rescue. I said, look, we've got these clinician awareness programs. She goes, I know we put clinicians through it. We love it. Well, we've got these peer providers. I know, but it's really tough if you dealt with the politics. I said, it's okay. We've got friends now. <laughs> um, we need you to do something out of your norm. Uh, we want to partner with you. We want to... Um, we want to launch this, take it from wireframe to website, functioning site. We want to work it. We want to put all these peer providers in there from all different walks of life. And we want to create a rule engine. And she goes, let me get my tech team. She brought tech team. And she brought in a Dr. Clint Bauer, amazing guy, Navy doc. Brought him in. We sat in a room. We pitched it. And they went, this is huge. This is scary. This is terrifying. This may be almost impossible. First responders matter. Let's do it. And they did. And, um, you know, all of the journey, watching um, families recover through suicide, um, realizing that suicidal ideation, struggle, and depression um, never left my heart. It's always going to be there, but it doesn't have to cripple me. Watching Lynn um, by my side of a, of a, a, you know, to be the amazing woman that she is that married an eccentric, obsessive, compulsive, lofty goal hose dragger. Um, and she hates it when I say it. I'm, 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 uh, I say I'm, I'm, I'm just a high school graduate and I'm just a firefighter and it pisses her off when I say that. And I don't do it to upset her. Um, but she's always encouraged and lift me up. Even when she was uh, being poisoned from the inside out by something that I did to her. Um, for those of you who don't know, if you're bringing uh, your gear home, if you're washing your clothing at home, if you're bringing your... I used to be an honorable order of the leatherhead. Stop being a dumbass and wearing absorbent gear. If you're doing it, you're part of the problem. And if you don't think it is, then go ahead and coat your helmet and gonorrhea for syphilis, HIV, and hepatitis, then put it on your head. No, you say, that's not sanitary. You think carcinogens are any different? <laughs> They don't discriminate. But I brought it home. And I did that to her. And I will regret it for the rest of my life. Um, going through and balancing all of that and always being inspired by firefighters that, that, that came back to work, that fought through it, or that retired and said, I can't do this anymore. You're a titan too. If you say that you can't do it, then don't do it. If you have a different calling in life, ignite it, follow it. Yeah. you're so much more than just limiting yourself. And there's more ways to help than just wearing our uniform. You're you have the right. same exact purpose. It might just look you know, like yes. a different avatar for the next chapter. And that's not a failure. That's no. a success. It's continuation. You know, so I, I remember coming home and embracing Lynn and, and, and everything, everything, everything was worth it. It wasn't easy. It was terrifying. Um, you know, I went from 196 pounds and having a good headline to 100, <laughs> 145 pounds and balding. Um, I probably up to 155 now. Thank you, donuts. I'm kidding. Sugar's bad. Um, but uh, my why never changed. The how and the journey to getting Redline Rescue launched, I never saw that coming. 
I never saw the necessity for politics. I never saw the um, sales pitches. I, I, I never thought I'd be speaking on the governor's mansion at the doorstep for the first lady. I, I, I Opening cabinet meetings and speaking for senators. And every time um, that one of those new roadblocks came up, um, people would say, well, you know, thank you. It was eloquent or that attached to me or that spoke to my heart or thank you. Um, I, I don't like public speaking. I don't. Um, but it doesn't scare me. What the hope is, is that you have the opportunity to show up for that one person in that crowd, that one individual, that one firefighter, that one cop make a difference. You know, and they said they would take Red Line Rescue and I got to see it come to life. <laughs> um, it was the day I changed my phone number. Um, the week before it, uh, we soft launched it, um, 113 hit. And uh, it was somebody that um, I I'd had, had the blessing to meet and the honor to work alongside through some struggles. And um, enough was enough. Um, and that was the day that I changed my number. Um, for those of you who got the number, um, please stop putting it on bathroom walls. I could appreciate that. <laughs> my uh, bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I really felt like I, I abandoned a lot of people, and it was tough to deal with. Uh, I was, um, but to see Redline Rescue go live, and know that there is an army of peer providers, man, it's astounding when you scroll through now and see how many and how many are pending. We've, we've got twice as many of what you see on the site pending for our review and certification and validation. We sat down on the back couch one night and we were getting a registration every seven minutes was the average for the first five days after we made the hard launch. We, we didn't even know if there were that many that had even taken the classes. So just the validation process to go back and confirm that they're real people with licensing, with credentialing, a master driver's license that have taken the class so we have quality content and character. I realized that it was the right thing. You know, so today, years after... Um, and a whole lot of lives that I've, I've been honored to have met. Um, the last part was done. So Redline Rescue was mapped out on a cocktail napkin. Yes, there is rum on it. Um, <laughs> it was on a night um, we can change our current and uh, put things in place to mold and meld our future. You won't change your past. Um, So it works. A firefighter in need is matched to their peer or culturally competent clinician. <laughs> no more general EAP. We've changed BHAPs. It's now a best practice in the nation. <laughs> if they only knew where some of the definitions I wrote in the BHAP model were, yes, I was on the toilet for some of them. <laughs> um, the last part is there. And you got to interpret it through a rum stain. <laughs> Must be free to the end user. <laughs> it is. The biggest barrier to entry for so many people. Um, I gave it away for free. As promised. Because it's the right damn thing. And uh, the neat thing is it's not Dustin Rescue. It's not Red Lion Hawkins. It's not any of that. Um, the best hope and dream of all of it uh, in a really long path. Uh, that wasn't a straight line. Holy crap. Um, I've met uh, a new family 
a big family. So thank you to the Florida Fire Chiefs. <laughs> thank you to the FPF. Hard for me to say I had some water. Thank you to the IAFF. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they, they, they finally did, uh, did what they said. They came together for the right reasons, right time. Thank you to the Bureau of Training and Standards, Director Hallis, Mike Tucker, Melvin Stone. Thank you to my fire chief. After 20 years in the fire service, if you'd have told me five years ago, I would have said thank you. When Indian River grew up in the dark ages, thank you to my fire chief. Um, thank you to my parents. Uh, you know, to watch um, to watch your child suffer and struggle. Um, be in the ICU. Uh, three times because <laughs> of a job. Um, thank you to my mom for making the suggestion to be a firefighter. I'm sure at times she regrets that. <laughs> Should have been a plumber, mom. Um, but uh, thank you to this family because it took a family and you're my family, James. Um, you are a interesting collector of souls and stories and give them a platform to live and for others. Um, it's about peer support. None of this, none of our lives, none of our experiences um, no longer uh, need to be held in the shadows. Um, to have thought from a day talking on an iPad uh, to a guy that I had only run into in passing to now realizing I can talk about PTSD, I can talk about suicidal ideation, I can talk about workers' compensation, I can talk about family caregivers and moral injury, and, and that you can still get on the truck and recover a body and have the opportunity for post-traumatic growth. I can walk into a fire chief's office as a chaplain now and a first responder asks for help and I can get them the damn help they need. And it's a normal conversation. It's not taboo. Man, the sun rose again, didn't it? it certainly did. So this evening, we are going to uh, return a napkin. And there's been some people that said they wanted to frame it. Um, but uh, we're not going to frame it. We're going to return it back to carbon. We're going to, uh, this evening, after we celebrate with a little bit of dinner, uh, we're gonna stick to the last thing uh, that I want to. Uh, I want to remain nameless. I want it to always be done for free. I want nobody to know whoever invented it, and uh, we're gonna light that baby on fire. Um, actually, James is because apparently I'm flammable. My wife didn't hear that, so that's okay. Uh, stand back. Yeah, I'm gonna stand back a little. Bit. We're not gonna use accelerants. Those things are tricky. Um, the um, to all of those who have listened to the first podcast. Um, Don't put your focus on one person. I appreciate and respect everybody saying, look, Dustin gets it. Um, what you'll find is, is your brothers and sisters sitting to your left, sitting behind you, facing rear, in the rescue, in the station, different department even. Um, there's not just one person out there that gets you, and you're not alone. Uh, there is an army of people that get up every single shift and put that uniform on that know what trauma looks like, tastes like, sounds like, and smells like. And what I task you with is connect with them. Connect with the right people that are trustworthy with your feelings. 
be part of a peer support training program. If you got a clinician in your backyard that does an amazing job, get them involved with the collaborative. Get them involved with the clinician awareness program. It doesn't cost you anything. What will cost you is if you don't step up and do something. It can cost a life. So um, I will forever be thankful for the fire service on how it is now. Um, the uh, Thank you to the Florida Fire Chiefs. Um, they did an a, a only award I ever brought home. Um, some, some, I guess everybody's going to know this now. A lot of the awards, um, I've always left them on the podium. Literally, this is a euphemism. Um, I don't like them. Um, and as you notice, now that you're officially in my home, I don't have anything fire department in my home. Um, you can't untwine it from your heart. You don't need to paste a mausoleum around your house. Uh, if it works for you, then okay, but it doesn't work for me. Um, I have all the inspiration of where I've been tattooed on my body from scars, and quite frankly, I prefer to be in the garden. The um, only award I ever took home um, just happened recently. They, they, um, Florida Fire Chiefs, or the Fire Chiefs gave a Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, the real reason I took it home is... Because it took a family for that. Um, it had nothing to do with me. And I'm thankful that uh, my uh, my family, we don't all have the same last name. <laughs> we don't carry the same DNA. Uh, thank you for this family. Uh, it's the greatest honor and blessing ever. Um, and uh, thank you to my brother, William French, from St. Lucie County Fire District for answering the call to teach me what peer support was about and for saving my life. Um, thank you for reminding me that I'm worth it. So I don't know if you had any questions. I think that's the perfect place to, to end right here. I just want to say thank you again. Obviously, there were other things we were going to talk about, but I think what we'll do is another another one we'll do another one over skype and we'll talk about you know lynn's journey and safer straps and we'll we'll just separate the two um you made such an impact telling your story you opened the door for so many people to realize that they weren't alone that they weren't crazy you opened a door for a lot of a lot more episodes where people told those stories um and then when you change your number i experienced a little bit of that myself you know there's you you start to become the go-to person, which is a beautiful thing. And some people you can help, but there is a, a point where it becomes hindering, you know, and there are so many other people. And that's just it. If each one of us looks out for one person, we can help everyone. If half of us are hurting and half of us aren't at that moment, then we cover everyone. What you've done with Redline Rescue, you and the family, is you've created the ability for that to happen. That when someone is struggling, whether it's just a you know a mild needing a hand to hold, or whether it's a you know an acute event, you've created that ability for that person to reach out not only to the right people, but as we said, for free. And that is such a huge thing because a lot of the theme of resistance of this conversation has been politics and red tape, and that's. That's what we've seen. The EAP horror stories, the insurance horror stories, these have led to so many deaths. You know, you know people, I know people 
So I'm so proud to sit here next to you. I can't wait to burn that fucking napkin. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. You and me both. But I just want to say thank you, mate, for, for everyone listening. Because I know, you know, the, the ripple effect of what you and all the other names that you've talked about tonight have done um, has saved lives. And when when people that we've relied on have failed, it's men and women like you and so many other people I had on here that picked up the torch and ran with it that you know has my absolute admiration i just can't thank you enough i thank you for this family i i didn't do anything we all did it we did um with that being said to uh, all of our brothers and sisters that listen to this um you do matter um you will feel at times that you are alone, but I promise you that you are not. Oh, how we end all of our face team meetings, I think it would be appropriate. Till we meet again, <laughs> be healthy, be well, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>